So I'll uh, read more suttas and then Lumpur Cha. I uh, thought I would read from the Samaditi Sutta. It's Majjhima Nikaya Sutta 9. And it's Venerable Sariputta teaching about the wholesome and the unwholesome. Now, I'm not sure I'll get through the whole sutta. I'll read this for about 15 minutes and then go to uh, Lumpur Cha for about another 15 minutes. Samaditi Sutta, right view. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jetta's Grove and at Pindaga's Park. There, the Venerable Sariputta addressed the bhikkhus thus. Friends, bhikkhus, friend, they replied. The Venerable Sariputta said this. One of right view, one of right view, is said, friends. In what way is a noble disciple one of right view, whose view is straight, who has unwavering confidence in the Dhamma, and has arrived at this true Dhamma. Indeed, friend, we would come from far away to learn from the Venerable Sariputta the meaning of this statement. It would be good if the Venerable Sariputta would explain the meaning of this statement. Having heard it from him, the bhikkhus will remember it. Then, friends, listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, friend, the bhikkhus replied. The Venerable Sariputta said this. When, friends, a noble disciple understands the unwholesome and the root of the unwholesome, the wholesome and the root of the wholesome, in that way he is one of right view, whose view is straight, who has unwavering confidence in the Dhamma, and has arrived at the true Dhamma. And what, friends, is the unwholesome? What is the root of the unwholesome? What is the wholesome? What is the root of the wholesome? Killing living beings is unwholesome. Taking what is not given is unwholesome. Misconduct in sensual pleasures is unwholesome. False speech is unwholesome. Malicious speech is unwholesome. Harsh speech is unwholesome. Gossip is unwholesome. Covetousness is unwholesome. Ill will is unwholesome. Wrong view is unwholesome. This is called the unwholesome. And what is a root of the unwholesome? Greed is a root of the unwholesome. Hate is a root of the unwholesome. Delusion is a root of the unwholesome. This is called the root of the unwholesome. And what is the wholesome? Abstention from killing living beings is wholesome. Abstention from taking what is not given is wholesome. Abstention from misconduct and sensual pleasures is wholesome. Abstention from false speech is wholesome. Abstention from malicious speech is wholesome. Abstention from harsh speech is wholesome. Abstention from gossip is wholesome. Uncovetousness is wholesome. Non-ill will is wholesome. Right view is wholesome. This is called the wholesome. And what is the root of the wholesome? Non-greed is a root of the wholesome. Non-hate is a root of the wholesome. Non-delusion is a root of the wholesome. This is called the root of the wholesome. When a noble disciple thus has thus understood the unwholesome and the root of the unwholesome, the wholesome and the root of the wholesome, he entirely abandons the underlying tendency to lust, he abolishes the underlying tendency to aversion, he extirpates the underlying tendency to the view and conceit I am, and by abandoning ignorance and arousing true knowledge, he here and now makes an end of suffering. In that way, too, a noble disciple is one of right view, whose view is straight, who has unwavering confidence in the Dhamma and has arrived at this true Dhamma. Saying, good friend, the bhikkhus delighted and rejoiced in the venerable Sariputta's words. Then they asked him a further question. But friend, might there be another way in which a noble disciple is one of right view and has arrived at this true Dhamma? 
there might be friends. When, friend, a noble disciple understands nutriment, the origin of nutriment, the cessation of nutriment, and the way leading to the cessation of nutriment, in that way he is one of right view and has arrived at this true Dhamma. And what is nutriment? What is the origin of nutriment? What is the cessation of nutriment? And what is the way leading to the cessation of nutriment? There are four kinds of nutriment for the maintenance of beings that already have come to be and for the support of those about to come to be. What for? They are physical food as nutriment, gross or subtle, contact as the second, mental volition as the third, and consciousness as the fourth. With the arising of craving, there is the arising of nutriment. With the cessation of craving, there is the cessation of nutriment. The way leading to the cessation of nutriment is just this noble eightfold path, that is, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. When a noble disciple has thus understood nutriment, the origin of nutriment, the cessation of nutriment, and the way leading to the cessation of nutriment, entirely abandons the underlying tendency to greed, he abolishes the underlying tendency to aversion, he extirpates the underlying tendency to the view and conceit I am, and by abandoning ignorance and arousing true knowledge, he here and now makes an end to suffering. In that way, too, a noble disciple is one of right view, whose view is straight, who has unwavering confidence in the Dhamma, and has arrived at this true Dhamma. Saying, Good friend, the bhikkhus delighted and rejoiced in the Venerable Sariputta's words. Then they asked him a further question. But friend, might there be another way in which a noble disciple is one of right view and has arrived at this true Dhamma? There might be, friends. When, friends, a noble disciple understands suffering, the origin of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the way leading to the cessation of suffering, in that way he is one of right view and has arrived at this true Dhamma. And what is suffering? What is the origin of suffering? What is the cessation of suffering? What is the way leading to the cessation of suffering? Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Not to obtain what one wants is suffering. In short, the five aggregates affected by clinging are suffering. This is called suffering. And what is the origin of suffering? It is craving, which brings renewal of being, is accompanied by delight and lust, and delights in this and that, that is, craving for sensual pleasures, craving for being, and craving for non-being. This is called the origin of suffering. And what is the cessation of suffering? It is the remainderless fading away and ceasing, the giving up, relinquishing, letting go, and rejecting of that same craving. This is called the cessation of suffering. And what is the way leading to the cessation of suffering? It is just this noble eightfold path. This is called the way leading to the cessation of suffering. Saying, good friend, the bhikkhus delighted and rejoiced in the venerable Sariputta's words. Then they asked him a further question. But friend, might there be another way in which a noble disciple is one of right view and has arrived at this true Dhamma? There might be friends. When, friends, a noble disciple understands aging and death, the origin of aging and death, the cessation of aging and death, and the way leading to the cessation of aging and death. In that way, he is one of right view and has arrived at this true Dhamma. And what is aging and death? What is the origin of aging and death? What is the cessation of aging and death? What is the way leading to the cessation of aging and death? 
the aging of beings in the various orders of beings, their old age, brokenness of teeth, grayness of hair, wrinkling of skin, decline of life, weakness of faculties. This is called aging, the passing of beings out of the various orders of beings, their passing away, disillusion, disappearance, dying, completion of time, dissolution of the aggregates, laying down of the body. This is called death. So this aging and this death are what is called aging and death. With the arising of birth, there is the arising of aging and death. With the cessation of birth, there is the cessation of aging and death. The way leading to the cessation of aging and death is just this noble eightfold path. Saying, good friend, the bhikkhus delighted and rejoiced in the venerable Sariputta's words. Then they asked him a further question. But friend, might there be another way in which a noble disciple is one of right view? and has arrived this true Dhamma, there might be friends. When friends, a noble disciple understands birth, the origin of birth, the cessation of birth, and the way leading to the cessation of birth, in that way he is one of right view and has arrived at this true Dhamma. And what is birth? What is the origin of birth? What is the cessation of birth? What is the way leading to the cessation of birth? The birth of beings in the various orders of being, their coming to birth, precipitation in a womb, generation, manifestation of the aggregates, obtaining the basis for contact. This is called birth. With the arising of being, there is the arising of birth. With the cessation of being, there is the cessation of birth. The way leading to the cessation of birth is just this noble eightfold path. Saying, good friend, Bhikkhu is delighted and rejoiced in the venerable Sariputta's words. Then they asked him a further question. But friend, might there be another way in which a noble disciple is one of right view and has arrived at this true Dhamma? There might be friends. When friends, a noble disciple understands being, the origin of being, the cessation of being, and the way leading to the cessation of being, in that way he is one of right view and has arrived at this true Dhamma. That's a bhava, sometimes translated as existence. And what is being? What is the origin of being? What is the cessation of being? What is the way leading to the cessation of being? There are these three kinds of being, sense sphere being, fine material being, and immaterial being. That's the uh, kama loka, rupa loka, and arupa loka. And that's sometimes known as the three worlds, uh, referred to sometimes by uh, Ajahn Man and other Krupa Ajans. With the arising of clinging, there is the arising of being. With the cessation of clinging, there is the cessation of being. The way leading to the cessation of being is just this noble eightfold path, that is, right view, right concentration. When a noble disciple has thus understood being, the origin of being, the cessation of being, and the way leading to the cessation of being, he here and now makes an end of suffering. In that way, too, a noble disciple is one of right view and has arrived at this true Dhamma. I'll read more reflections from Lumpur Cha. This is continuing with a still forest pool. This talk is called Happiness and Suffering. A young Western monk had just arrived at one of Ajahn Chah's forest monasteries and asked permission to stay and practice. I hope you're not afraid of suffering was Ajahn Chah's first response. Somewhat taken aback, the young Westerner explained, was that, do you know who that was? That was Jack. That was Jack, Jack Cornfield. 
somewhat taken. He, he ordained in second form. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, somewhat taken aback, the young Westerner explained that he did not come to suffer, but learn meditation and live peacefully in the forest. Ajahn Chah explained, there are two kinds of suffering, the suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you are not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. Ajahn Chah's way of teaching is usually straightforward and direct. When he meets his monks on the monastery grounds, he often asks, are you suffering much today? If someone answers, yes, he replies, well, you must have many attachments today, and then laughs with the monk about it. Have you ever had happiness? Have you ever had suffering? Have you ever considered which of these is really valuable? If happiness is true, then it should not dissolve, should it? You should study this point to see what is real, what is true. This study, this meditation, leads to right understanding. And this talk is called The Discriminating Mind. Right understanding ultimately means non-discrimination, seeing all people as the same, neither good nor bad, neither clever nor foolish, not thinking that honey is sweet and good and some other food is bitter. Although you may eat several kinds of food, when you absorb and excrete them, they all become the same. Is it one or many? Is a glass big? In relation to a little cup, yes. One place next to a pitcher, no. Our desire and ignorance, our discrimination, color everything in this way. This is the world we create. Again, a pitcher is neither heavy nor light. We just feel that it is one way or the other. In the Zen koan of the flag and the wind, two persons are watching a flag. One says it's the wind that moves, the other says it is the flag. They can argue forever, take sticks and fight it out, all to no avail, for it is the mind that moves. There are always differences. Get to know those differences, yet learn to see the sameness too. In our group, people come from different, different backgrounds, different cultures, yet without thinking, this one's Thai, th that one's Lao, he's Cambodian, he's a Westerner. We should have mutual understanding and respect for the ways of others. Learn to see the underlying sameness of all things, how they are all truly equal, truly empty. Then you can know how to deal with the apparent differences wisely, but do not get attached even to this sameness. Why is sugar sweet and water tasteless? It's just their nature. So too with thinking and stillness, pain and pleasure. It is wrong understanding to want thinking to cease. Sometimes there is thought, sometimes stillness. We must see that both are by nature impermanent, unsatisfactory, not a cause for lasting happiness. But if we continue to worry and think further, I am suffering, I want to stop thinking, this wrong understanding only complicates things. At times, we may feel that thinking is suffering, like a thief robbing us of the present. What can we do to stop it? In the day it is light, at night it is dark, is this itself suffering? Only if we compare the way things are now with other situations we have known and wish it were otherwise. Ultimately, things are just as they are. Only our comparisons cause us to suffer. You see this mind at work. Do you consider it to be you or yours? I don't know if it's me or mine, you answer, but it's certainly out of control. It's just like a monkey jumping about senselessly. It goes upstairs, gets bored, runs back downstairs, gets tired of that, goes to a movie, gets bored again, has good food or poor food, gets bored with that too. Its behavior is driven not by dispassion, but by different forms of aversion and fear. 
You have to learn control. Stop caring for the monkey. Care for the truth of life instead. See the real nature of the mind, impermanent, unsatisfactory, empty. Learn to be its master. Chain it down if you must. Do not just follow it. Let it wear itself out and die. Then you have a dead monkey. Let the dead monkey rot away, and you have monkey's bones. Still, enlightenment does not mean to become dead like a Buddha statue. One who is enlightened thinks. One who is enlightened thinks also, but knows the process as impermanent, unsatisfactory, and empty of self. We who practice must see things clearly. We need to investigate suffering and stop its causes. If we do not see it, wisdom can never arise. There should be no guesswork. We must see things exactly as they are. Feelings are just feelings. Thoughts are just thoughts. This is the way to end all our problems. We can see the mind as a lotus. Some lotuses are still stuck in the mud. Some have climbed above the mud but are still underwater. Some have reached the surface while others are open in the sun, stain-free. Which lotus do you choose to be? If you find yourself below the surface, watch out for the bites of fishes and turtles. Sense objects and the mind. We do not examine ourselves. We just follow desire, caught in endless rounds of grasping and fearing, wanting to do just as we please. Whatever we do, we want it to be at our ease. If we are not able to have comfort and pleasure any longer, we are unhappy, anger and aversion arise, and we suffer, trapped by our mind. For the most part, our thinking follows sense objects and, wherever thought leads us, we follow. However, thinking and wisdom are different. In wisdom, the mind becomes still, unmoving, and we are simply aware, simply acknowledging. Normally, when sense objects come, we think about, dwell on, discourse over, and worry about them. Yet none of those objects is substantial. All are impermanent, unsatisfactory, and empty. Just cut them short and dissect them into these three common characteristics. When you sit again, they will arise again, but just keep observing them, keep checking them out. This practice is like caring for a buffalo and a rice field. The mind is like the buffalo that wants to eat the rice plants, sense objects. The one who knows is the owner. Consider the comparison. When you tend a buffalo, you let it go free, but you keep watch over it. You cannot be heedless. If it goes close to the rice plants, you shout at it, and it retreats. If it is stubborn and will not obey your voice, you take a stick and hit it. Do not fall asleep in the daytime and let everything go. If you do, you will have no rice plants left, for sure. When you are observing your mind, the one who knows constantly notices all. As the suttas say, he who watches over his mind shall escape the snares of Mara, the evil one. Mind is mind, but who is it that observes it? Mind is one thing, the one who knows is another. At the same time, the mind is both the thinking process and the knowing. Know the mind. Know how it is when it meets sense objects and how it is when it is apart from them. When the one who knows observes the mind in this way, wisdom arises. If it meets an object, it gets involved, just like the buffalo. Wherever it goes, you must watch it. When it goes near the rice plants, shout at it. If it will not obey, just give it the stick. When the mind experiences sense contact, it grabs hold. When it grabs hold, the one who knows must teach it, explaining what is good and what is bad. 
pointing out the workings of cause and effect, showing that anything it holds on to will bring undesirable results, until mind becomes reasonable, until it lets go. In this way, the training will take effect, and the mind will become tranquil. The Buddha taught us to lay everything down, not like a cow or a buffalo, but knowingly, with awareness. In order, us, in order for us to know, he taught us to practice much, develop much, rest firmly on the principles of the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, and apply them directly to your own life. From the beginning, I have practiced like this. In teaching my disciples, I teach like this. We want to see the truth not in a book or as an ideal, but in our own minds. If the mind is not yet free, contemplate the cause and effect of each situation until the mind sees clearly and can free itself from its own conditioning. As the mind becomes attached again, examine each new situation. Do not stop looking. Keep at it. Drive the point home. Then attachment will find nowhere to rest. This is the way I myself have practiced. If you practice like this, true tranquility is found in activity in the midst of sense objects. At first, when you are working on your mind and sense objects come, you cling to them or avoid them. You are therefore disturbed, not peaceful. When you sit and wish not to have sense contact, not to have thinking, the very wish not to have is desire. The more you struggle with your thinking, the stronger it becomes. Just forget about it and continue to practice. When you make contact with sense objects, contemplate, impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. Throw everything into these three pigeonholes, file everything under these three categories, and keep contemplating. Problems of the world. Many people, particularly educated, professional people, are moving out of the big cities, seeking quieter living and simpler livelihood in the small towns and rural areas. This is natural. If you grab a handful of mud and squeeze it, it will ooze through your fingers. People under pressure likewise seek a way out. People ask me about the problems of the world, about a coming apocalypse. I ask, what does it mean to be worldly? What is the world? You do not know? This very unknowing, this very darkness, this very place of ignorance is what is meant by worldly. Caught in the six senses, our knowledge develops as a part of this darkness. To come to an answer to the problems of the world, we must know its nature completely and realize the wisdom that shines above the darkness of the world. These days, it seems that our culture is deteriorating, lost in greed, hatred, and delusion. But the culture of the Buddha never changes, never diminishes. It says, do not lie to others or to ourselves. Do not steal from others or from ourselves. Worldly culture has desire as its director and guide. The culture of the Buddha has compassion and Dhamma or truth as its guide. And just one more, we'll read just that much. When you take a good look at it, this world of ours is just that much. It exists just as it is. Ruled by birth, aging, sickness, and death, it is only that much. Great or little is only that much. The wheel of life and death is only that much. Then why are we still attached, caught up, not removed? Playing around with the objects of life gives us some enjoyment, yet this enjoyment is also just that much. Whatever is pleasurable, delicious, exciting, good, is just that much. It has its limit. It is not as if it is anything outstanding. 
the Buddha taught that everything is just that much of equal value. We should contemplate this point. Just look at the Western monks who have come here to practice. They have experienced much pleasure and comfort in their lives, but it was only that much. Trying to make more of it just drove them crazy. They became world travelers, let everything go. It was still only that much. Then they came here to the forest to learn to give it all up, all attachments, all suffering. All conditioned things are the same, impermanent, caught up in the cycle of birth and death. Just look at them, they're only that much. All things in this world exist thus. Some people say, doing virtuous deeds, practicing religion, you grow old just the same. This may be, this may be true of the body, but not of the heart, of virtue. When we understand the difference, we have a chance to become free. Look at the elements of our body and mind. They are conditioned phenomena, arising from a cause and therefore impermanent. Their nature is always the same. It cannot be changed. A great noble and a great noble and a common servant are the same. When they become old, their acts come to an end. They can no longer put on airs or hide behind masks. There is nowhere to go, no more taste, no more texture. When you get old, your sight becomes dim, your hearing weakens, your body becomes feeble. You must face yourself. We human beings are constantly in combat, at war to escape the fact of being just that much. But instead of escaping, we continue to create more suffering, waging war with good, waging war with evil, waging war with what is small, waging war with what is big, waging war with what is short or long or right or wrong, courageously carrying on the battle. The Buddha taught the truth, but we are like buffalo. Unless they are tied down firmly by all four legs, they will not allow themselves to be given any medicine. Once they have been tied down and cannot do anything, aha, now you can go ahead and give them medicine. They are unable to struggle away. In the same way, most of us must be totally bound up in suffering before we will go, let go and give up our delusions. If we can still writhe away, we will not yet give in. A few people can understand the Dhamma when they hear it taught and explained by a teacher, but life must teach most, most of us all the way to the end. You can pull on the end of a rope, but if the other end is stuck, the rope will never budge. In order to make it come free, you need to find out where it is stuck. You need to seek out the source or the root of the problem. We must use our practice fully to discover how we are stuck, to discover the heart of peace. We must follow the ox's tracks from the beginning, from the point at which it left the corral. If we start in the middle of the trail, we will not be able to tell whose ox's tracks they are, and thus we could be led anywhere. Therefore, the Buddha spoke of first correcting our views. We must investigate the very root of suffering, the very truth of our life. If we can see that all things are just that much, we will find the true path. We must come to know the reality of conditioned phenomena, the way things are. Only then can we have peace in our world. Is it there? We have uh, 15 minutes. I don't know if uh, Lung Paul, if you had any uh, comments on any of those particular teachings. You remember where, where some of them came from? For example, Jack, uh, that was the source of that one. Yeah, Jack was the source of that one, <clears throat> which I had, I had assumed before, but then uh, when, when I was up at the Hermitage, I interviewed him about uh, <clears throat> his early days, and he, he mentioned that when he came down. So it was... Uh, <clears throat> um, 
I think one of the things is um, say just that much or just as much uh, as a teaching is also needs to be put in the context of of uh, 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 say human context or in the context of Ajahn Chah himself in the sense that as is the case with all teachings um, <clears throat> you want to sometimes you can can uh, look at things on a rational level so it was just that much and then that or even say like, okay, let it go. All you need to do is let go. So don't bother with anything and just let go, which is not really letting go. I mean, it's it's like you really have to learn how to take care of things. So in the same way, like just that much is is um, not not necessarily because it comes from a place like Ajahn Chah as a person. You think, well, everything's just that much. There's no, no, no intrinsic value to it. Just everything's equal, and so then everything is flat, uh, and the response or the reaction or the the affect uh, that one is trying to achieve is 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 a sort of a, a supreme flatness, <laughs> which is is not the case at all in the sense of of, uh, you know, when Ajahn Chah is talking about just that much, is he's really alive and, and, uh, and this incredible uh, compassion and joy coming through. Uh, and and uh, so that, that in the same way you look at things in terms of you know, everything is a nichidukanata, nichidukanata, nichidukanata. And yeah, everything's impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. <clears throat> so, and, you know, and then logically come up at a place of nihilism, which is not the case at all either. I mean, it's just it's this. <clears throat> I think it's just important to to recognize that what again these are these are teachings to balance us, and and that and it probably come up in this book. <clears throat> At some point, uh, Ajahn Chah talking about what all he's doing is trying to get people to get on the piece. He sees people <coughs> going off into the ditch on one side, and he says, you know, go left, go left, because they're going off in the ditch on the right, or, or if they're going off on the ditch on the left, then you say, go right, go right. <coughs> so you, you, you can easily take the uh, the teaching and sort of has to be like this, but it's really it's all about the the sense of of balance and and just rightness that that allows the mind to see things in their true nature, but then also to relinquish um, relinquishing the unwholesome, establishing oneself in the wholesome, or being uh, experiencing a sense of of real ease and clarity. So those are that's just some reflection. With, with just that much, uh, could you also say like, like <coughs> what he's trying to point to is like it's finite. Like it only went that far. Like no matter how much suffering you had, 
it was finite. It didn't. It wasn't like yeah. Some there's so many ways to sort of reflect on it, and and, and certainly, for as much as as one's, you know, oh, all of my suffering, and I said, no, it's only that much. It's it's not. Uh, it's it's not so much really. It reminds me of my when my mother worked in the hospital, and she would ask to rate your pain for the patient to rate their pain on a scale from one to ten, right. and they would say like ten million, or they would just like, <laughs> like, like as if it's like just like yes, that's it's not just that much. It's not just that much. <laughs> it's not just the, that empty impermanent phenomena. <laughs> <laughs> had two questions. One is, in the sutta, what does nutriment mean? And how is contact a nutriment? There was, I think it said contact was one of the nutriments. And then the second question I had was about, in the reading, um, it said that the mind is both the one who thinks and the one who knows. The mind thinks and the knows. And um, just in practice, one thing I was noticing recently is that when you're, the mind has like a kamatana, and then it le at some point it leaves the kamatana and goes into thinking or something else. And then it feels like, but there's something other that's watching and knows that, okay, it has left the kamatana. So it almost feels like there are two minds, or, and I had been wondering what those two things are. Are they both just like, mind from this moment knowing the mind of the previous moment, or are they two different things? No, if you could You have very good fortune, you only have two minds. <laughs> uh, I think one of the... Uh, I, I, I wouldn't... Uh, <clears throat> you, you drive yourself nuts trying to... Uh, uh, define and pin it all down into a into a you know, onto a conceptual map. Um, the sense of <clears throat> you know when the word mind is is a very loose term that is pointing to the the I mean in in Pali uh, it's citta and and. Uh, and of course, then there's aspects of the of the jitta. Mano uh, is is more the conceptual and thinking mind. Vinyana uh, <coughs> uh, is more the consciousness element. Um, but it, it bleeds back and forth. And in Thai, then it's uh, it's even less defined. Um, because they'll they'll just take the word jitta and use jit, and uh, and it can apply to both the the elements of of thinking and proliferating the wandering mind as well as the the element of of knowing. But it's, the thing is, is <clears throat> there is the uh, I, it, what is important is to recognize there it is this capacity to know our thoughts. And you know, and that which is knowing is not the thoughts themselves. Uh, so then you say, "Oh, well, I can return to that quality of knowing. Uh, it's there." Uh, so it's just is is being able to recognize that there is this respite from the the 
the thoughts and proliferating and the moods and that 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 and there is this quality of knowing, uh, but not to uh, get tie yourself too tightly to the conceptual realm, and then uh, <clears throat> the nutriments are. I mean, it is actually the word that is used is ahara, uh, and in <clears throat> and it literally means food, and and in Thai, it's 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 that's one of the words that have been transposed into the Thai language, so that it's a very mundane, you know, uh, you know, you because one of the there's, there's four different types of nutriment, and there's the physical food, so that 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 sense of yeah you know, physical food and ahara contact. Uh, I mean, in it, it's what what do we feed on is a good is a good way of of uh, of uh, reflecting on it. What do we feed on, and what do we seek out to feed on? And of course, yeah, physical food, and, and we, you know, we, especially one meal a day, you think you start thinking about food a lot sometimes. <laughs> so you, but not, <coughs> so that's it's feeding on that food, and then contact is the contact with the senses and contact with feeling, uh, because we we feed on feeling and we seek out pleasurable feeling and we try to avoid um, experiencing unpleasant feelings so we feed on 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 contact the the uh, the we feed on the thought processes and manosanjetana the 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 the, the volitional thoughts and 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 the 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 whole realm of thought proliferation cons, concepts ideas um, we feed on it it it, it nourishes us in a in a and nourishes us in a skillful and there's there is there is healthy uh, thought processes and and there is unhealthy in the same way there's you know good good food and there's junk food and same with consciousness we feed on consciousness we f we we seek out that nourishment of 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 of, of consciousness of being able to to consciously experience something uh, we don't <clears throat> and or we you know that's the whole problem with say nihilism is that we try to blot out consciousness we try to blot out being try to and think that maybe that's the way out but uh, it's it's through understanding and penetration that is 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 the way the way out the way through and those aspects of nutriment are really important contemplations and reflections uh. I was just curious if maybe you could talk a little bit about, uh, I find myself so like deep down, my conception of self deeply intertwined with the one who knows. So I was wondering if, if maybe you could talk some about the not self aspect of the, the knower. 
Well, because you can't make it be there all the time and stand out as a, a yes, this is the one who knows, and, and, he's, and he's permanent and stable, and I can always be like, then, then it's, uh, that's non-self. And that's really the, that's the, the, the bottom line for, for if something were self, then it should be permanent and stable and, and uh, readily available and accessible. And, and uh, you know, the unfortunate reality is it's not. And which doesn't mean that we <clears throat> dismiss, again, it's this middle way aspect. Um, that that we 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 the, 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 even the one who knows has to be handled lightly uh, and with wisdom, otherwise it it uh, yeah it sort of tries to prop itself up as something special, uh, uh, or it you know recedes into the background of our proliferations and obsessions. Yeah, it's like a, it's like the awareness, the attention is always, it's not stable. It's it's always focusing on different things, either the thoughts or the. So it's. I could I guess you could say on an ultimate level, like Porcimato is talking about unconditioned knowing. That's one thing, but the knowing that we're familiar with is, you know, knowing a sight, knowing a sound, knowing a thought, but that attention is jumping around to all these things and it's very unstable <laughs> and uh, very flighty, very flighty and uh, there's a sense of temerity. Uh, one more Sachito likes to use the word temerity about it. And yeah, and, and that's the thing with, with that sense of trusting in that awareness, trusting in the one who knows is that it's actually the trust that allows it to become a bit more steady mm. as opposed to me making it happen or me forcing it to be a certain way, which is me is trying to make it into a self. Okay, that's good for today.